someone came and took her lover's life. Spooky greetings. Thank you guys so much for stopping by Paranormal Prowlers podcast and listening to the newest episode. It's greatly appreciated. Those tunes you just heard are, of course, courtesy of the awesome Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. The man, he sits there. He looks around. Three other men are near him. Too close for comfort. He sighs. (sighs) He puts his arm to his face and wipes the sweat away. He thinks to himself, Why did I do what I did to get to where I am at this very moment in time in my life? Hell. This is hell. If I could just go back in time and not do the things I did, leave the comfort of home sweet home, to be confined in this tiny space with several men, Several dangerous men. Men who have killed and living in such harsh conditions. Harsh conditions indeed. You know, Yuma Territorial Prison, it's also known as Devil's Island. It's appropriately positioned and situated at Prison Hill Road. This prison opened their doors, welcoming convicts and criminals alike, on July 1st, 1876 and close those doors, transferring all the prisoners a little over 33 years later, on September 15, 1909. The prison had the reputation as being known as a hellhole, but in reality, it wasn't half bad. Believe it or not, most of the prisoners didn't even serve their full sentences due to the ease of paroles and pardons that were being bestowed. Due to all the releases, they wanted to have things at the prison that could and would better the inmates. Tools that would make them successful, happy, and able to live, hopefully, somewhat normal lives. So they had things like a library, a workshop, and you know what, even a school. Not only did they have all of this, but unlike many prisons, jails, and other institutes at that time, They had three meals a day. One, two, three meals. And I don't mean just bread and water, of course, you know, unless you ended up doing something that landed yourself in solitary confinement. But you know what? We're going to get into that a little later. I found the weekly menu and I was kind of shocked just how much the inmates actually got. For example, let me read what they would have had today, Monday. They started off with a nice breakfast, a plateful of bacon, beans, bread, and coffee. For lunch, it was kind of a repeater. They had bacon and beans and bread. And for supper, they had fruit, rice, bread, and coffee. Now, okay, I know, it's not the Ritz-Carlton, but hey, it could be a lot worse, right? I mean, some days they're more glamorous than others. Maybe Monday's a little more on the simple side, but hey. I'm a baking gal, so I'd be happy. But anyways, on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, meals at Yuma Territorial Prison consisted of beefsteak with boiled potatoes and bread, 
Pot pies and beef stew as well. Uh, yeah, not bad for being in prison, am I right? And here's an interesting fact. In 1884, Yuma Territorial Prison became the first place in Yuma, Arizona to have electricity. In 1893, it built a library, and like the electricity, the library was the first of its kind in Yuma, and it was the first state penitentiary in Arizona. So a few firsts here and there, am I right? While the topic is all about the prison itself, I want to mention that it didn't only serve as a prison. After it closed down, it was a school, and then homeless people camped out there, and it also served as a place of shelter for people during the Great Depression. The territorial prison has seen quite a few escapes in the decades that it's been open. At least 26 prisoners have escaped, never to be seen again. That's a lot of prisoners, a lot of dangerous people out there. But for those who dared to escape and were busted... And who weren't shot. Well, they ended up with a date with the old ball and chain. And I'm not talking about a wife or girlfriend, my friend. I'm talking about a heavy-ass ball and chain. And I'm not talking about a wife or girlfriend, my friends. Mm-mm. Nope. I'm talking about a heavy-ass ball and chain. Then, of course, there's the bloody history. When, in 1877... The Gates Riot occurred. On the 27th day of October, seven inmates attempted to escape, and it escalated to violence rather quickly and quite deadly. An escape attempt turned riot turned somewhat of a massacre, if you will. The dangerous inmates decided it would be a nifty idea to hold Thomas Gates, the penitentiary superintendent, hostage. The ringleader and mastermind of the riot was a man named Librado Pueblas. There were, of course, challenges and obstacles trying to escape a place like Yuma Territorial Prison. It all started with an innocent conversation between the superintendent Thomas Gates, the the soon-to-be victim, and inmate Jose Lopez. To distract Thomas, Jose asked him about the shoe trade. The two men, they're just walking, and Jose's talking, and Thomas is genuinely interested in what the inmate has to say, so he's listening intently. Totally distracted. Well, suddenly, Jose's partners in crime and fellow inmates, Fernando Vasquez and Ezekiel Bustamante, approach quickly and quietly from behind. Their demand, get us through the Sallyport gate right now or we will kill you where you stand. Soon, the leader, Librado Pueblas, and inmates Villa, Padilla, and Baca joined them. That means the superintendent, who's very frightened at this moment, is surrounded. Surrounded by very dangerous men. They make it through the prison gates, where they encounter Yardmaster Fridley, who tries to stop the escape, but during this attempt, one of the inmates crudely and violently strikes him with a heavy pick. This severely injures Fridley. But even though he's hurt, this brave man grabs inmate Padilla, wrestling with one another and hurling himself and the inmate over a steep embankment. Because of this very brave act by Yardmaster Fredley, this dangerous inmate is apprehended. Inmate Baca decides to make a run for it. A guard, E.O. Williams, opens fire on the escapee. And Baca is out with two shots. Not fatal, but 
At this point, you know what? He's definitely retired from the Gates riot. Bye-bye, Baca. The remaining inmates managed to make it to Thomas Gates' home. It is here, at the Gates' home, that they acquire a pistol and five rounds of ammo. At this point, their hostage is struggling big time. He's in the fight for his life, and he knows it. For one moment, he breaks free from his captors and signals to one of his guards, Benjamin Franklin Hartley, who is positioned at the main tower. The signal? Open fire on the whole lot. Take them out. Make the threat go away. The expert rifleman does as told, and in the process takes out inmate Via. Well, you know, this does not sit well at all with Jose Lopez. In fact, it damn well infuriates the man. He slams the stolen pistol, Gates' pistol, hard against Thomas Gates' head, threatening to murder the man with his own gun. This lets Hartley know that he damn well better cut the shit or he will murder the big boss right here and there. Even though Gates is hurt, he tackles with Jose Lopez, wrestling. He shoves the pistol away, and in the process, it discharges. Hitting none other than the leader. A prison employee shows up, ready to help out. It gets intense for him when him and Lopez shoot at one another at the same time. Lucky for him, they both miss. The employee takes off running, and the inmate runs after him. Well, the expert rifleman, who just took out Via, is witnessing this, sees that he has the opportunity and the perfect shot, and takes out Lopez, dropping him like a damn bag of flour. The employee being chased stops, turns around, and then shoots him as well. Meanwhile, Ezekiel Bustamente is armed with a butcher knife and swings it wildly and desperately at Gates. Hartley has another clear shot, and guess what? Bye-bye, Bustamente. Next on the list is Fernando Vasquez, dropping the inmate immediately. Like a sack of potatoes. So much is happening, and now there's only one inmate left standing. He, too, has a butcher knife, and he is desperate and has nothing to lose. His goal? Take out Superintendent Thomas Gates. His fellow inmates are either captured or shot dead. This needs to happen. Take him out. He runs. He has nothing to lose at this point, right? He runs. He violently grabs Thomas and plunges the large knife right into his neck and starts anxiously and wildly starting to twist it. With the large knife, he is cowardly trying to hide behind the superintendent as he doesn't want to be the rifleman Hartley's next victim. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Another inmate enters the picture. He's actually doing time at Yuma Territorial Prison for extremely dangerous crimes. One of them, murder. He rushes in, not to join in on the attack, but to actually help the injured superintendent turned hostage. Amazing! This prisoner, Barney Riggs, Thomas Gates yells at Riggs, telling him to get the stolen pistol that is now in the dead hand of inmate Jose Lopez. Kill him! The super yells. 
Upon hearing this demand, Ezekiel is probably thinking, kill me? I do not think so. And punishes Gates even more by stabbing him several more times in his body. As this is happening, Barney Riggs grabs the gun from the now deceased Jose and shoots Pueblas in the chest. And shoots right in the chest. Hartley takes a shot too. This one in the back. Still not down, Riggs pulls the trigger one final time in the chest. At this point, the super Thomas Gates is falling, and Riggs catches him just in time, and another inmate rushes over to help as well. Thanks to the guards and to the inmate Barney Riggs, Thomas Gates survives his wounds, but only for so long. He never healed completely and was forced into early retirement. He was never the same again, and the pain fully never went away. He had several surgeries, and he was never the same. This incident was so traumatic, it changed him. And as long as he tried to get through the pain, on March 13th, 1896, he put his 41 caliber Colt revolver to his right temple, and he pulled the trigger, saying goodbye to his pain and ultimately to the world. Now, believe it or not, from start to finish, the riot was around five minutes. Jeez, it took me longer to describe the riot than it did that it actually happened. It's one of those things that it just happened so fast. I'm sure for all those involved, especially the hostage, those five minutes must have felt like a damn eternity. Garden rifleman Hartley later admitted to Thomas Gates that he had rigs Barney Riggs, the one who helped him in the end, covered by his rifle. And as he stood there talking to him, he said, to this day, I don't know why I didn't shoot and kill him. But I think he knew, obviously, if he took out Riggs, that Gates surely would have been murdered. Even though he was serving a life sentence for murder on December 31st, 1887, due to his courageous decision to help and life-saving actions... Two months after the deadly prison riot, Barney Riggs was pardoned. Fifteen years later, in 1902, after he had been married and had several children, Barney himself was murdered. Though it lasted less than 300 seconds, which is mind-blowing to me, the Gates riot, which claimed four inmates' lives, three badly injured, and in which was the cause for Gates' suicide, it is forever burned into part of Arizona's bloody history. One notable location in the prison is where inmates who were hard to handle or were out of hand acting out spent time in solitary confinement. This was known as... The Dark Cell. It was dug out in 1894. Unruly prisoners better think twice before acting up or they would find themselves in the Dark Cell. In the center of the cell is a cage, which is, I think, about five feet high and about ten feet long. Ten feet long. It contained two solid-ass metal doors, and besides an itty-bitty tiny vent, there was no light whatsoever. They would be stripped to their underwear and placed in the cage. Their legs oftentimes would be shackled by two-ring bolts. While serving time here in the dark cell, they would be given only one meal a day. And believe you me, it was no beefsteak, broiled potatoes, pot pie, or bacon. 
The one meal was bread, which was probably a little on the old side, I'd imagine, and some water. They would have nothing but time to sit there in the pitch black darkness, thinking of their actions and the consequences. More than once, the unlucky, troublesome inmates would complain about snakes and scorpions. Some believed that some of the guards were responsible for putting the snakes and scorpions in through the vents, a form of additional punishment, if you will. That, of course, was never proven. It is documented that at least two inmates who had spent time in solitary confinement, the dark cell, had to be transferred to a mental institute afterwards. It is no shock to me that the area where the dark cell stands is known to be haunted with paranormal activity. But we're going to get to the hauntings just a little later on. First, I'd like to talk about some of the inmates themselves. The first convict to call Yuma Territorial Prison home was William Hall. The first female inmate was a woman named Lizzie Gallagher in for manslaughter. They didn't know where to place her. Certainly, they couldn't just toss her in with the men. So they put her in the dark cell and there she stayed for 42 days. I'm sure it felt like a lot longer than that, though. After the 42 days, she was pardoned and she was released. Another gal called the prison home, Pearl Hart, an outlaw of the Old West. She committed one of the last recorded stagecoach robberies in the United States. For a female, that is a rarity. Truly, she's the only known female stagecoach robber in Arizona history. Known as Lady Bandit, or Bandit Queen. One day, Hart received a notice that her mother was very ill, and if she could return home to be with her. Needing money, it was decided that she would rob a stagecoach. This would not be a solo mission. She had a partner in crime, a man named Joe Boot. She disguised herself to look masculine, cutting her hair short and dressing in men's clothing. No one would be the wiser. Hart had her 38 revolver and boot while well, he had his Colt 45. They had a route in mind. One of the final stagecoach routes still operating in territory, and this route hadn't had any robberies or any other troubles in quite a few years. So the coach was comfortable with not having a shotgun messenger. They knew this, and ooh, they were ready for that. During the robbery, the outlaws managed to get $431.20. Now we have to remember, this was back in 1899. That's a shitload of money. $431.20 in 1899 is equivalent to $13,320.13 today in the wacky year of 2020. In addition to the moolah, Hart and Boot also took two firearms from the stagecoach passengers and the driver's revolver. They then take off wildly on the horses. As this is happening, the coach unhitches one of his horses and goes immediately to town to alert the sheriff. Less than a week later, a posse led by the sheriff located the outlaw's Fast asleep. Uh, uh, 
<clears throat> Boot went without any problems, while Hart, well, she was a feisty gal, and she fought like hell. This stagecoach robbery landed her in Yuma. After her release, she would perform a show for the public, basically reenacting her crime, then her experience while at Yuma. After that, she was part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Very interesting stuff, to say the least. One inmate was in Yuma for unlawful plural marriage. That's right, William Jordan Flake. Boy, was that guy flaky. <laughs> he was a Mormon. He served six months at Yuma for having more than one wife. Talk about being a busy fella. Both waited for him on the outside, and he lived the rest of his life in Snowflake, Arizona. I mean, we just have to take that in for a second. A man named William Jordan Flake living in Snowflake. I don't know. That's just funny. But anyways, he lived in Arizona in Snowflake with his two wives. And get this. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, I better get a calculator. Two, two, two. Twenty children. Twenty kids. Very, very busy guy. Ouchie Wawas. Many a murderers called this place home, too, including C.E. Hobbert, a man who spent a lot of time in the dark cell and even tried escaping twice. Fun fact, in his spare time, he enjoyed knitting. Maria Moreno, she did time for murder. This murderess, who was only 16 years old, really didn't appreciate it when her brother, Alfred Moreno, 15 years old, told her, hey, I don't like the way you're dancing. Be more respectful. You know, he found it inappropriate. And even though he was a year younger than her, he still wanted to protect her. He told her to stop doing what she was doing. Upon his request, she threatened that she would kill him. <laughs> Calling her bluff, he yelled, Kill me then! Well, Maria did as she was told. Being a good sister, she got a shotgun, approached her brother, and with the shotgun in his face, she shot him dead right where he stood. Boots on and all. Among the list of murderers is Guillermo Lizaldo. Couldn't find any details on him or the murder. Philip Lashley, he was a saddle maker turned murderer. There are so many others, but the next ones that I'm about to share, well, their stories demand a little more attention and detail. Picture it. The man, he embraces his lover. They share a long, passionate kiss. They gaze deeply into one another's eyes. Oh, so beautiful. I love you. I love you. The love is real. So right there in the moment. So wrong. Or, hmm, or at least the woman who's hiding thinks so. She's not just angry, she's furious. That man kissing the woman happens to be her boyfriend. Her one and only. Her lover. What? The tarnation hell is her man doing with this floozy. There's nothing worse than a woman scorned, especially when that woman is Lena Estrada. Legend has it that when she found out her love, Refugio Bendia, cheated on her, breaking her heart, she thought she would return the favor. She stabbed her unfaithful lover. Yeah! She then proceeded to rip out his heart and throw the bloody mass right into his face. Wha-pa! Needless to say, he did not survive. Would have been shocking if it were the case. Now, some articles say this indeed happened. 
while others say there's no proof of this happening, the throwing of the heart. What we do know for sure is that she stabbed her unfaithful, heartbreaking lover to death. Whether his heart was ripped out or not, he was absolutely murdered. The Arizona Republican reprinted a story that was originally in the Tucson Citizen, saying, quote, Refugio Bendiola, a native of Sonora, lies dead at his home in Los Rieles as the result of a knife wound at the hand of Elena Estrada. The whole matter seems to be the result of drunkenness. It is difficult to get a clear idea of the case as even the time of the cutting is unsettled, unquote. During her time at Yuma, records show that Estrada was sentenced to seven years. While serving her time, Estrada, being her feisty little self, was known as a little scrapper and got into fights, which resulted in her spending five days in the dark cell. She is finally paroled in 1904. Another inmate doing time for murder was none other than buckskin Frank Leslie. Mm-mm-mm. Buckskin was a man of many trades and talents, including a rancher, a miner, a gunfighter, an army scout, and the list absolutely keeps going on. Wyatt Earp himself was quoted saying Leslie was the only man who could compare to Doc Holliday's blinding speed and accuracy with a six-gun. In Tombstone, Leslie killed two men in two different incidents, both in self-defense. At the Cosmopolitan Hotel was a chambermaid named Mary Jane. Leslie had a bit of a crush on her. Tough luck, though, Pilgrim, as she was getting married to Mike Kyleen. Poor Mike, he was a smart man, and he had an inkling that something was going on with with this Leslie character and with his lady, Mary Jane. Well, you know, a couple months after the wedding, Mike witnessed an intimate moment between his new bride and Buckskin Frank. Angered by this, he fires two shots at Leslie. It's uh, close two shots as the bullets actually manage to graze the stunned Buckskin's head. Kyleen doesn't stop there. He runs to Frank Leslie and starts to attack him, clubbing him repeatedly in the head with his revolver. During this time, Kyleen himself is shot and fatally wounded. What's shocking to me is that a little over a week later, Mary Jane Kyleen, the widow of Mike Kyleen, marries her husband's murderer. The marriage shockingly didn't last long. And once the divorce is finalized, he dated a woman for a while, but they got into it into a drunken argument, and he killed her. He pled guilty to murder in the first degree and was served a life sentence, but was pardoned only six years later. Now, I mentioned two killings, both self-defense. Obviously, the girlfriend thing, that was a horrible crime. She died. She, you know, there was no self-defense involved in that one, and he did his time for that, little as it may have been. The second killing in defense takes place at the Oriental Saloon in Tombstone, one of my favorite places, where Frank Leslie is tending bar. Well, Billy Claiborne, who we, most of us know, is part of the infamous Clanton and McLarry gang, well, he stumbles in. It's very obvious that he's already had a few too many beverages. He starts to use inappropriate language, 
Kick your little ass, you little bitch. So Leslie asks the foul mouthed Claiborne to hit the bricks. But he stays put and continues to be a nuisance. So Wesley, who has had quite enough of this bullshit, grabs Claiborne by the collar and escorts him out, in which Billy Claiborne threatens him. I quote Buckskin Leslie as he says, He used very hard language, and as he started away from me, shook a finger at me and said, That's all right, Leslie. I'll get even with you. Leslie ignores the threat and goes back into the Oriental Saloon to get back to Tending Bar. Customers are waiting. Customers are thirsty. Only a couple minutes go by when suddenly two men walk in and approach Leslie telling him, Hey, there's a man outside saying he's waiting for Leslie to come out so they can shoot him. Leslie cautiously walks outside when he sees, quote, A foot of rifle barrel protruding from the end of a fruit stand. Leslie tries to talk some sense into the extremely intoxicated Claiborne, but it falls on deaf ears as he raises his rifle and takes aim at Leslie. He misses, and in defense, Leslie returns fire. He explains the situation. I saw him double up and had my pistol cocked and aimed at him again. I advanced upon him, but did not shoot, when he said, Don't shoot me! I am killed! He was sentenced to Yuma over the murder of his girlfriend, whom he shot at their ranch, which was mentioned a moment or so earlier. Sheriff John Slaughter took Leslie, now known as inmate 632, and several others to Yuma Territorial Prison. It is said that Leslie was so intoxicated that he could scarcely walk. He was in prison for a few months, then tried to escape, but later on actually became a model inmate and even spent time working at the prison's pharmacy. So he did no time for the self-defense shootings, obviously, but it was for the shooting of the girlfriend that he did his time in Yuma. The next inmate I want to talk about is a woman named Pearl Eicher. Her story starts out simple enough, but there's some twists and turns and stops somewhere in bizarro land. I found an old article dating back to 1907 titled Legend of the Pie Thief. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? Like, I don't know. I would watch that. And I would, I would probably have some pie in the process of watching it. Maybe like a buffet of pies, you know, like rhubarb or apple or, you know, cobbler, like, you know, all the berries. I'm sorry. Now I want pie. Anyways, it describes the events that unfolded and eventually led to why Pearl called Yuma Territorial Prison home. And I'd like to read that now. Quote, Yuma resident Pearl Eicher was known for making delicious pies and would set them in her windowsill of her kitchen to cool. In October of 1907, however, Pearl and the other women in town fell victim to a pie thief who was stealing the yummy pies. Frustrated with the missing pies, Pearl and the other victims hatched a plan to catch the thief. They employed their husbands to set a trap. One night, Pearl placed a pie in the window while the men waited to catch the thief. As the smell of fresh, baked pie filled the air, a figure appeared from the shadows. moving ever so slowly toward the pie. 
Just as the figure was about to snatch the pie from the windowsill, the men grabbed the suspected pie thief, and a struggle ensued. As the pie thief fought to get away, the men became violent and began to beat the pie thief. When the dust settled, the pie thief lay dead on the ground, and the group of men were standing over the bloody body of the young man. Pearl, she was shocked. Shocked and faced the reality that the men had just killed the young man, argued that they should bury the body in the desert and never speak of the night again, which is exactly what the men did. Weeks later, Pearl made a pie for the first time since the murder. But, to her surprise, before the pie had cooled, it had disappeared from the window. Frustrated, Pearl called for her husband, but there was no answer. Pearl walks through her house looking for her husband. She stumbled upon a gruesome scene. Her husband was lying dead on his back with a scalding hot pie dripping off his face and a stab wound in his chest. Written on the wall with blood were the words, Beware the pie thief. That night, the other husbands who had been involved in the death of the pie thief suffered a similar fate. The same message written in blood. Beware the pie thief. An investigation into the deaths indicated all of the men had been killed with the same weapon and Pearl's pie knife was found at the scene of the last death. This evidence would lead police to conclude Pearl was the killer, and she was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to prison in 1907, despite her claim that she was innocent. Witnesses reported that during the short time she was in prison, she suffered from delirium and etched the words, Beware the pie thief, into the walls of her cell, over and over again. Beware the pie thief. Beware the pie thief. Pearl died in Yuma Territorial Prison January 10th, 1908. Unquote. Okay, so even though she was the one who planned a trap, and then when it turned deadly, she's also the one who recommended, instead of, I don't know, call the cops, call 911, get some paramedics out here, some EMTs, somebody... It was decided, let's bury this body, never talk about it again, bury it in the desert where it will never be seen. Is it possible that she was remorseful and weeks later decided going on a killing spree, murdering her husband and all these other men, the men involved? I don't know. If I was watching a movie and I saw that, I would be like, holy crap, she's the killer? Like, that's insane. And how eerie that she etched the same haunting message in her jail wall. Beware the pie thief. Beware the pie thief. Now, obviously, she died the following year without serving much time in prison whatsoever. While there were many deaths at the prison, Pearl Eicher was the only woman to die there. The COD, a bowel obstruction, took her out. Seven months into her sentence. As mentioned just seconds earlier, many inmates died behind prison walls. Before we dig six feet deep into the hauntings, I want to talk about some of the deaths. Now, while the death count isn't in the thousands like some other places like Waverly Hills, 111 people did die behind these prison walls while serving their sentences. Inmate Richard Russell was the first to die, and one died while en route to serve his time in prison. Pete DeVal was on his way via train to the prison when he attempted to escape by jumping off the fast-moving train. 
And you know, just like Russell Crowe on the 310 to Yuma, this guy Pete definitely didn't want to go anywhere close to Yuma Territorial Prison. He would rather jump off a fast-moving train to escape it. Bad idea. I think it's the worst idea the desperate man could conjure up. As he hit the ground, his head hit a large rock in which resulting to his death. You see, he didn't have a horse to whistle to like Russell Crowe did. It's a variety of ways they died out there. Several died from tuberculosis. That was like the number one cause of death. Some died when they dared trying escape, including during the Gates riot mentioned earlier. While some choose to try to escape, others decided to end the pain, a more permanent route, via suicide. Many suicides are linked to this prison. William Douglas, Tom Kuhn, Sing Kwong, John Smith, and John Ryan. They're just a handful of inmates that escaped the prison this way. Suicide. The latter mentioned John Ryan was a man who was serving time for, quote, an act against nature, which we know that means it was rape or another type of sexually deviant act. It was known that he was deeply disliked. He killed himself in cell number 14, another paranormal hotspot to be talked about later. Eight died from gunshot wounds, the felled escapees being Ezekiel Bustamante, Miguel Hordiola, Jose Lopez, Francisco Ocaño, Librado Pueblas, Sisto Ramirez, and Fernando. Some of these names you'll remember from the Gates Riot. While some were killed trying to escape, some were murdered by fellow inmates, such as John Brown. An inmate struck him with a rock, and he expired quickly after. Simon Aldrete was stabbed by an inmate, an inmate that would later be executed. But more on that in just a moment. Then you have the freak accidents, like when S.K. Dapani was bit by a rattlesnake. And due to that bite, he contracted a blood poisoning and died from that. I mean, ouch. What a way to go, right? One man, Francisco Garcia, was executed. They didn't perform executions at Yuma Territorial Prison, but he stayed here until the time was to say bye-bye to this world. Known as inmate number 1747, Garcia was one bad apple. Many knew him by his alias, Martin Ubios. Garcia, or Ubios, whatever you want to call him, he came from Mexico. A fight took place in the Monte Cristo mine, and Garcia murdered a miner. He served his time at Yuma with his pending death hanging over his head. He yet got into another fight, and as mentioned just a minute or so ago, he killed his cellmate, Simon Aldrete. His execution was scheduled for the beginning of 1900, but there were delays, and he didn't get a date with the noose until 1905. An article in the Arizona Sentinel was published on June 21, 1905, describing the execution. Quote, The prisoner was brought from the territorial prison in a carriage, which was driven from Gia to Third, and thence to the courthouse, entering through the probate judge's office. A great crowd has assembled in the jail court on the roof overlooking the scaffold to witness the execution with his lips murmuring, but with a look of horror on his sensual, brutish face. Martin Ubios was swung into eternity at the end of a rope in the jail yard here last Friday. 
unquote. So I mentioned a few different ways people died here. Other causes of death include congestion of lungs, typhoid fever, pneumonia, old age, Bright's disease, brain tumors, aneurysm, cancer, bronchitis, of course, tuberculosis being a number one, at least 46 people died from consumption alone. Accidental drowning and uh, even diarrhea is on the list. Like death by diarrhea. Ooh, how horrible. As many of types as there are, the prison had nine cause of death causes and categories. Those being tuberculosis, pneumonia, cardiac exhaustion and debility, suffocation and asphyxiation, gunshot and escape attempt, trauma, digestive and intestinal, and of course the almighty other. And we can't forget about the old prison cemetery. Out of the 112 deaths, 104 are buried at the cemetery. Seven were claimed by their families, and the one who fell off the train, well, that wasn't on prison grounds, so I'm assuming his family must have claimed him too. Burials were very simple. They dig a shallow grave, put a simple wooden casket with the remains in it, cover it with soil, then lay over rocks. On November 24th, 1906, Tucson Citizen published a little nice piece titled A Convict's Funeral. Quote, Death is the tyrant that strikes fear into the hearts of most of the convicts. It means those that are not claimed and are without friends will lie beneath the barren plot just outside the penitentiary, the convict's cemetery. Piles of rocks shaped like a grave with a plain slab giving the name and number mark the final resting place. Services are brief at a convict's funeral. There are no mourners, no tears, no flowers. A simple burial service by a minister or priest. And that is all. Unquote. Now if you go there, don't expect to see a full head on cemetery. No 104 headstones here. Unfortunately, most of the headstones have been stolen from people who call themselves treasure hunters. Those aren't treasure hunters. Those are people stealing stuff. Who are we kidding? They straight up are thieves destroying and stealing history. In fact, it's sad. Out of the 104 headstones, only one has ever been located. It's of an inmate named J.F. Floyd who died from tuberculosis. The headstone is part of the museum safe from the treasure hunters and i don't want to say treasure hunters because there's some legit treasure hunters out there they're safe from the thieves let's just put it that way now let's jump into the hauntings shall we people have had encounters and experiences in the office and the museum things have been known to just kind of move around on their own accord lights turn on and off when no one's even close to the switches On more than one occasion, people have seen coins float out of the cash register, rising into the air, then land back into the drawer. The dark cell is another important area where strange happenings occur. One time, a medium was there and felt the presence of a little girl. The medium believes this little girl lived and died here during the Great Depression. The young spirit lets herself be known by pinching and poking visitors and employees. She seems to be attracted to the color red. So I don't know, maybe if you go there sometime, you want an encounter, you might want to wear red. 
Besides pinching and poking, people have experienced the touch of cold little fingers. Unsure if this is the little girl or an inmate who spent time in solitary confinement, as it is believed several spirits are around the dark cell. Kind of sad to think that, like, you know, it's possible that a little girl would be forever stuck in a place like the dark cell, you know, where so much desperation and despair was spent. A while back, a local magazine writer came to Yuma with full intent to stay in the dark cell for 48 hours. The goal? She wanted to see what prisoners went through. So her legs were shackled. She was given only bread and water. Enough strange things happened where she requested to get out early. And even though she didn't make the full 48 hours, she was in the dark cell for for several hours, 37 actually. And she would later share that when she was in there doing her time, she strongly felt she was not the only one in there. Another location that demands attention in the paranormal department is cell number 14. Now, earlier I mentioned how an inmate doing time for a sex crime committed suicide. When employees go in this cell, immediately they know something's up. The feeling is weird and straight up uncomfortable. Also, major cold spots have been experienced here. John Ryan spent his last moments in the cell before killing himself. Is John lingering around messing with people? He seems like he was a bad seed in life. Maybe he gets off on making people uncomfortable in death as he did in life. Who knows? Or it could be somebody completely different. You know, it might not even be Ryan. The last one I want to mention is a place that you won't see if you visit Yuma Territorial Prison. It was a cell that was used for the insane prisoners. It's now closed off and walled up and closed from the public. A ranger was curious and did some research and ended up finding an old picture that was taken back in the 1930s. The picture seems normal enough at first. It shows a woman and behind her, well, that's where it's not very normal. That's where the para throws itself in. It's an apparition of a man. And coming soon, I'm going to be having a bonus episode of a young lady who's a fellow paranormal investigator who's been to Yuma. And while she said nothing crazy happened there, I thought it would be fun to get somebody on who's actually been there to talk about it, to, you know, who stepped foot on the prison grounds. And so keep an eye out for that. Her name is Bree Blackstone. She's an awesome gal, and I can't wait to have her on. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others, you guys. They're equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry. You can binge listen right now. Just venture over to Google Podcasts, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Cast. Basically, wherever you roam to listen to your other awesome podcasts, you'll surely find Paranormal Prowlers Podcasts. This week's special city shoutouts go to Grass Lake Charter Township, Michigan, Pilar de la Horadada, Spain, Cape Coral, Florida, Santa Clara, California, and Oakville, Canada. As always, you guys, you're rock stars. It's so freaking appreciated. Keep listening. And again, you guys, if you have any idea or recommendation, or, you know, some haunted item or haunted spot or something, or you know somebody 
who has a, you know, something to share when it comes to the paranormal, supernatural, bizarre, unknown, and unexplained, please let me know at paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.